podcast about true crime every wednesday every wednesday welcome to this wednesday this is in fact <laughs> a wednesday dun, dun, dun. well not really it's a tuesday but tomorrow's wednesday which when is when you'll what when, you'll hear this when you're listening it's a wednesday and that's all that matters <laughs> i hope it's a wednesday you better be listening when we drop these if you're not right. i'm coming for you and also follow us on all of our socials Yes. Send me messages so I can find you. Yes. Follow us on the Facebook and the Instagram where you'll stay up to date with all of our episodes. Quick shout out for us. Because I always forget. I forget too. It's okay. It's okay. So today, are you ready to hear about uh, a more modern day Myra Henley? Oh, I don't know if my heart can handle a Myra Ugh. Sure. <laughs> I can't remember the other guy's name. Uh, Was it Ian? Ian? Yeah. yeah. Ian Brady. Yeah. It's pretty much a modern day version of them. It's... Oh. They just got away with... This, this one got away with less, though, so... Okay. So... We're in for it today. You take what you can get. Take what we can get. So today we're talking about Paul Bernardo and Karen Homoka, who Karen? are... Karen? Carla... Carla, she is a Karen, but her name is Carla. My bad. Uh, they are known as the Barbie and Ken murders, and this all happened in the 1990s. Okay. We love a good 90s. Brad, man. Totally. Throwing up the hang loose. Hang loose, guys. Hang ten. So, Paul Bernardo was born August 27th, 1964, in Ontario, Canada, to Kenneth and Marilyn Bernardo. They were a well-off, middle-class family. And it was about 1975 when things started to fall apart for the Bernardo family. Mm. Kenneth had been arrested and charged with molestation, and there were rumors that he even molested his own daughter. Like a sicko. Hate that. Hate that. People say that the news of his father didn't affect him too much. Uh, so Paul just heard this, glazed over, was like, whatever. Dear old dad. Dear old dad. But he was also 11, so... He probably didn't understand the gravity of it, I would assume. Yeah, he wasn't He wasn't fully there. I would there. hope, if he didn't care, I would hope he just didn't understand. But then in 1980, when Paul was 16, hmm. he was advised by his mom that he was a product of an affair. And it was after this confession from his mom that his behavior started to change. So it really started to sink in that, hmm, maybe life isn't as good as I thought it was. Hmm. And he started to call his mom a slob and a whore and all these things publicly to people. You know what, Paul? You're a slob and you're a whore. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, Paul. Kick rocks, Paul. But Paul attended the University of Toronto and was described as a good-looking and, and charming fellow, which he, he used to his advantage. He would pick up women from bars, only to later beat them and humiliate them. Once that wasn't enough for him, he started to act out on darker, darker impulses, which you can only imagine what those darker impulses are because we're here. Are you going gonna, to uh, tell me about that? Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was May 4th, 1987, when a young woman was getting off a bus when she was grabbed and brutally raped near her parents' home. There were more similar assaults over the following week. 
The women Paul would target were all between the ages of 15 and 21, and his attacks would include getting beat, intense per... Would include getting beat, intense verbal abuse, and threats to discourage the women from going to the police. So pretty much telling them, I will find you and I will kill you. And to, well, to any woman who's been through that, that's terrifying, because why wouldn't, why would you not believe that? Right. But these are babies. These are... Like 15, 16. Yeah, they're children. Like, they're babies. Oh, man. They don't know what's going on. They just know they're getting hurt, which is sad. That's terrifying for for them. So, news sources quickly dubbed him as a Scarborough rapist. During Paul's five-year tenure as a Scarborough rapist, he attempted or he attempted to rape or did rape 19 young women. Good God. The women were all targeted near bus stops, excluding one 15-year-old girl who was attacked in her bedroom. I hate that. Yeah, so he must have been stalking outside. It was like, mm-hmm. time to strike. Paul was questioned by police twice, but was never named as a suspect. In May of 1990, one of Paul's victims was able to describe, to describe him with more accuracy, but by the time they were able to identify him, he moved on to bigger, more unhinged crimes. Oh, Next, more unhinged. More unhinged. Jeez. <laughs> Next, we have Carla Homoka, who I keep wanting to say Karen. I don't know why. It's Carla, though. It's Carla. Carla was born on May 4th, 1970, in Ontario, Canada, as well, to Dorothy and Carl. So Carla was the oldest of three siblings and was described as being pretty smart and popular. She came from a normal, well-adjusted family with no notable darker side. So just she was messed up just to be messed up in the head. (laughs) Nothing wild happened to make her this way. She's just... Carla. She's just Carla. Classic Carla. That darn Carla. So Mm. Carla met Paul in 1987 when she was 17 and he was 23. There was an immediate attraction between the two. The attraction grew when Paul learned that Carla shared the same fantasies that he did. Gross. Gross. The relationship blossomed into a sadomasochist sadomasochistic relationship. I can't say that word. I think it's sado. They were gross, guys. That's that's what it's going to boil down to. They were disgusting. They were um, gross humans. So, Paul acted as an abusive master and Carla was a willing slave. If you're into that, I'm not here to kink shame. Okay, so if you're in the BDSM community, there is no shame. You keep from doing us on you. this podcast, yeah. Because if you do it correctly, from what I, I I don't know, but I've heard it's like it's all consensual. Like there's boundaries. It's supposed to be done correctly. I'm gonna go with that is not the case with what we're talking about today. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Paul and Carla did not do anything correctly. So we're not talking about the community. Y'all do you. If it's consensual, y'all do you. Exactly. We just don't like Paul. Paul. <laughs> so Carla, she knew about Paul raping people. And of course she did. And she approved of his actions. She mm-hmm. was there for it. She was like, you know what? Do what you gotta do, my dude. There are no words. There are no words. Mm. 
Eventually, the couple became engaged, and Carla would talk about how happy they were and how they were happier than ever. Oh. So good for them. There must have been a lot of shady things going on to make them super happy. Yeah. However, the truth was that Paul was getting bored of Carla and would complain that she was not a virgin when they met. This is when he turned his attention to Carla's 15-year-old sister, Tammy. I hate that. Carla, however... She wasn't bothered by Paul's desires, but she encouraged him by saying that she wanted him to have Tammy's virginity as a Christmas present. Because that was hers to give. It was hers to give. Ugh. It was December 23rd, 1990, at the Homoka Family Christmas Party that Carla would... During the Homoka Family Christmas Party, Carla would spike Tammy's drink with an animal anesthetic... That she had stolen from the animal clinic that she had worked at. So she she drugged her. She was like, I'm just gonna just gonna go ahead and knock you out here. Later that night, when the family was sleeping, Carla held a halothane soaked cloth over Tammy's mouth, and Paul and Carla took turns raping her while videotaping the whole thing. Tammy began choking on her own vomit, and Carla and Paul panicked and hid the evidence before calling an ambulance. Unfortunately, Tammy never woke up and was pronounced dead at the hospital. Tammy's death was ruled accidental as the result of choking on vomit from alcohol poisoning. The drugs in her system were not detected, and even though there was a weird chemical burn on her face, it was noted, but nothing came of it. So, There's so much to unpack. <laughs> so much to unpack. I don't... I just don't... Like, even... If Carla justified Paul doing it in her sick mind, she raped her own sister. Yes. Multiple times. Multiple times. Sick. That's not for me, dog. That should not be for anyone, No. (laughs) It was for Carla, though. Uh, Uh. I, I hate these people. I'm so... I know this case, and I hate them so much. They are. They're horrible. So Tammy's murder only fueled Paul's need for blood. He that got him reared and ready to go. In 1991, Carla lured another teen that she was friends with to the home, and her and Paul to the home that her and Paul shared. Now Paul and Carla drugged her, abused her, and videotaped it. Only this time, the girl survived and woke up with no recollection of the events that occurred. So they did their thing, took her, and dropped her off somewhere. I'm really glad she doesn't remember. Me too. I mean, it's horrible. But I am glad she doesn't have to, like, live through it, I guess. The memories of it. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. I hate it. I hate them. On June 29th, 1991, mm-hmm. Paul and Carla had an extravagant wedding. I bet they... I've seen... Oh, I've seen pictures of oh, it. I I'm, need having, to, I'm having it come back to me. I'll need like to look up the pictures. Uh, it is like the tackiest of tacky, if I remember correctly. Well, they had a horse-drawn carriage. Yeah, it was a horse-drawn carriage. And you can just tell, like, she thought she was like a princess. I'm going to look mm-hmm. it up now because I can't remember. But I do remember at the same time. She looks like a giant cupcake. Oh, yeah, face. she does. And I also hate that they're known as the Barbie and Ken killers. 
Well, they were attractive for the time. I'm going to be honest. I don't think they're attractive at all. I don't think so either. It's. I think it's one of those questions. Are they hot or are they just blonde? I think they're just blonde. Because I don't see it at all. But everyone talks about how like hot they were. Sorry, that this was a sidetrack. It's statement. okay. I, I think but it was just because, you know, for the time they were attractive. You know blonde. how how conventional attractiveness changes every 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just think they both look like rats. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're still on June 29th, 1991. The day of their wedding. The day they had their horse-drawn carriage. The day that she looked like a cupcake. Mm-hmm. The same day, at Lake Gibson, which is near St. Catharines, Ontario, okay. a couple who were canoeing found large concrete blocks I with human remains in them. I thought you were going to say a couple canoodling found. <laughs> oh, yeah, a couple canoodling. Mm-hmm. They were canoeing. <laughs> the remains were identified as 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey, who had disappeared on June 14th of 1991. Now, Leslie was returning home on the night of June 14th and missed her curfew and she found the door to her parents' house locked. So all of this happened because she was just a little bit late getting home. What, like, did they, I wonder if they just locked the door because it's like, oh, she's late, we gotta, like, teach her a lesson, like, you should make it to curfew. I think that's what it was. They probably have so much guilt for that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Those poor parents. So Leslie had gone to a payphone to see if she could stay with a friend, and her friend refused her. So that friend's got to feel bad now, too. Oh, man. Yeah, they definitely... You'd have to feel so guilty. Um, Mm -hmm. She was on her way back to her parents' house, and while returning home, she crossed paths with Paul, who lured her back to his car to fetch a cigarette, and he pulled a knife out on her and took her to his home. Leslie's friend called her parents the following day to check up on her since she had been locked out. This caused Leslie's mother to panic and start searching. After finding no trace, she had gone to the police where the police labeled her as a runaway. Nine times out of ten, the police are labeling these teenagers as runaways when they're not. Like, how many teenagers genuinely run away to where every single person gets labeled a runaway? It's gotta be a lot. But, like, every single time I read a case and it's about a teenager, oh, they just ran away. It's fine. And But even if you think they ran away, they're a minor. Go look for them. Go look for them, yeah. <laughs> I would look up statistics to see how many uh, teenagers run away, but... They're all runaways, so we would never know. We would never know because <laughs> they're just... Even if they're not a runaway, they're labeled as a runaway. I hate it. I hate it. Anyways. Anywho. On June 15th, 1991, after hours of rape and abuse... Mm. Paul took an electrical cord and attempted to strangle Leslie. The first attempt at strangling her left her unconscious but didn't kill her. Mm-hmm. And Carla then drugged her, and Paul strangled her for a second time. Paul had stated that while he was out of the room, Leslie ultimately died, so... I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened there. Um, He's like, I don't know what happened. I left the room. I didn't kill her. I didn't kill her. She was only strangled by an electrical cord. Twice. Twice. But not me. Now, Paul states that he was getting the car ready to transport Leslie to a location where they were going to ultimately release her when he came back and she was dead. So. I like the story is, I tried to kill her twice, 
But I didn't. But I and didn't. I was going to let her go, but then she just died. Yeah. I don't know. On June 16th, 1991, Leslie's body was moved to the basement of the home because Paul and Carla were hosting Father's Day dinner for Carla's family. When the dinner was over, Paul and Carla went down to the basement and used a circular saw to dismember Leslie into small enough pieces to lift once encased in concrete. So. I don't know what happened, guys. I just left the house. And then she died. And then I just, I cut her up, and I don't know what happened. I don't know. I, he didn't cut her up. Come on. The circular saw cut her up. Come on. It wasn't me. <laughs> it was the tool of which I was holding, but I had no control. <laughs> poor Leslie, though. Oh, my gosh. That poor girl. So they had, to, the medical examiner had to use dental records to confirm Leslie's identity. That's how badly she was mm. hacked up. The dismembering always gets me. Yeah. I I don't understand. As as a human who works with dead humans, I couldn't I couldn't imagine. Mm. I just that's just a no for me. That's a no for me, dog. So it was a year later almost well, almost a year later. April sixteenth, nineteen ninety two, Paul and Carla struck again. Of course they did. This time they were a little bit more sloppy. Uh, so Carla and Paul approached Kristen French under the guise of needing directions. Once Kristen was distracted giving, par- giving Carla information, Paul attacked her from behind and held her at knife point and forced her into the car. This was seen by several witnesses. So now we have people clocking in on them, knowing that Good. there's something going on. The medical examiner's report states that she was held in captivity for three days, during which Paul and Carla videotaped themselves torturing and subjecting Kristen to sexual humiliation while forcing her to drink large amounts of alcohol. Kristen was murdered on April 19, 1992, and her naked body was found in a ditch along Number One Side Road in North Burlington on April 30, 1992. I wonder what would make them decide to, like, dismember versus not dismembering i don't know i guess i don't know just a thought because it's very different ways of going about it it really is maybe it was just too much work for him they didn't want to keep doing it maybe Mm, i don't know but Kristen was badly beaten and half of her head was shaved so Mm. i'm she's probably humiliated like they probably did to like knock her down a peg yeah probably Mm. Mm. January 1993, Carla decided to leave Paul after he had beaten her with a flashlight. Within two months of her leaving, Paul's DNA turned up as a match for the Scarborough rapist, and he was put under surveillance before being arrested on February 9th, 1993. So, finally. He finally, we're finally getting somewhere. Carla, however, had told the authorities that she was an unwilling accomplice as a result of domestic violence. Carla had made a plea deal with prosecutors for a reduced prison sentence for exchange of a guilty plea to to a charge of manslaughter. During this time, investigators went through the psychopathy, psychopathy, yeah, psychopathy checklist uh, with her, and she scored 5 out of 40. They did the same thing with Paul when they arrested him, and he scored a 35 out of 40. Does that mean, like, he's just crazy? Yes. Or psychotic? He's psychotic. 
I bet she bullshit her way through oh, it. Oh, for sure. Like, I know if somebody I were mean, to subject me to one of those, I would answer the best question that I think the person would want to hear. She 100% did that. For sure. For sure. February 17th, 1993, Paul was arrested and a search warrant was issued for their home. The search warrant was very limited because there was a very weak link between Paul and the murders. Mm-hmm. And the warrant kept searches at a minimum, so the police couldn't damage any property or tear down walls in search of these videotapes that everybody now knows of. Gotcha. The search of the house lasted for 71 days, and initially the only tape to be found was a small segment of Carla performing oral sex on a Jane Doe. Oh. Yeah. During the investigation, Paul called his lawyer, Ken Murray, and advised him that the tapes were hidden in a light fixture in the ceiling. Ken then gathered the videotapes and hid them from investigators. That's a way to be a good lawyer. That's how you make sure so you're... he hid the tapes? He hid the tapes. He, he went in, he got them, and he absolutely just hid them. That, he was looking for a bonus. He really was. I mean, I don't know how, how as a person you could do that, but I guess he was earning that coin. He was going for it. He uh. was pulling some Murdoch shit. <laughs> Go listen to our Murdoch episode. Go listen to our Murdoch episode. It's a good timeline. You'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Perfect. On May 5th, 1993, it came out that Carla's plea bargain was to be 12 years in prison, and she only had a week to accept the deal. If she did not accept, then she would have been charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder and various other crimes. Carla accepted this deal. Mm-hmm. And on... May 14th, 1993, the plea bargain was finalized. Now, before the trial for Paul, the videotapes came out proving that Carla was more than a willing participant in the crimes, and as a result, the deal that Carla had struck with prosecutors were, was dubbed the deal with the devil. Yeah, I was waiting for that. Yeah. So basically, she got that deal at, like, just the right time. Oh, yeah. Like, they just didn't realize how involved she was. For sure. And then when they found out, it was way too late. Well, she played that I was an abused mm-hmm. housewife card. She mm-hmm. she really played it up. Mm-hmm. Carla. So during the duration of the trial, there was an attempted publication ban so Paul could have a, trail, a fair trial. The ban didn't work very well during this age because the internet's now a thing. And when American sources were posting details, because they did not fall under the span of the ban, so the ban, yeah, the ban took place in Canada, and these American sources were like, let me go ahead and report on this, because y'all can't tell me what to do. That sounds pretty American. Canadian citizens would also cross the border into Buffalo, New York, to to purchase newspapers about the case. And, uh... It was if you were crossing back over in the Canadian border, mm-hmm. back over to Canada, Canadian. <laughs> because I can't talk today, uh, and they and you had more than one newspaper with you, they would confiscate all the newspapers and burn them. Oh. Yeah, so they, they really tried. Mm-hmm. So February 1994, Carla and Paul finally got divorced. It was a pretty, there was nothing too fantastic about the divorce, it was... It happened. I don't think they really had a whole lot to, like, fight over. Yeah. It's probably pretty straightforward. That's fair. I would imagine. Now, the rest of this, it's going to feel really timeliney, 
because it's just a lot going on. Bullet point. Yeah. Here we go. On September 7th, 1994, Ken resigned as Paul's lawyer, and John Rosen was hired on September 12th, 1994, mm-hmm. and he had handed the tapes over to the police. So, September 12th, 1994, the police now have the videotapes. Everybody now knows that these people fucking suck. And that Carla is not innocent because her ass was on tapes. Her ass is on these tapes. The trial began on May 18th, 1995, and the prosecutor, Ray Houlihan, portrayed Paul as a sexual sadist who beat and blackmailed Carla into the crimes committed. On May 31st, jurors began watching the videotapes of Leslie, Kristen, a Jane Doe, and Tammy. On June 19th, Carla claimed that she was beaten into submission by Paul, who had the and had to watch him strangle Leslie and Kristen. On August 14th, the prosecution rested their case, and the next day, the defense began theirs. Paul admitted to kidnapping and raping Leslie and Kristen. However, he claimed that they died while he was out of the room. And Paul later claimed that Carla was the actual killer. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. On September 1st, 1995, after eight hours of deliberation, the jury found Paul guilty on all counts and he was sentenced to life in prison with no parole. Good. As of 2022, Paul continues to serve his life sentence at a maximum security prison in Millhaven, Ontario, where he spends most of his time in solitary confinement. Good. I read somewhere that he had gotten in trouble a few years back for uh, making a shank, but then it was dropped because he was like, that's not my shank. Yeah. We know you're doing things. We know you're out here doing the stuff. Stop. Stop. Just stop. What do you, like, just, if you're going to make a shank, just say you made the shank. (laughs) Right? You're already in solitary. What else could they do to you? Now, Carla, when she got out of prison, she married her, she married her lawyer's brother. And they moved to Guadalupe, where she volunteers at their children's school. So... She's just out there living a normal She's everyday her life. life. Yeah. With her kids, being a trying to be a PTA mom. Pretty much. Around other kids. Just let that sink in for a second. And they targeted teenage girls. Essentially children. Children. Ugh. One thing I love is that Carla looks so bad now. I need to look up what she looks like right now, because I didn't think about doing that. Because uh, she was like, the Barbie and Ken murders, and they're so hot, and they're so pretty. And girlfriend, like... Oh, yeah, girl looks rough. She is rough. So, rough rat life. Apparently, there's a Discovery Plus uh, thing about them called the Barbie and Ken murders the missing tapes or something like that okay i know that there's like different movies like not like fictionalized i don't mean that but like scripted movies of it yeah it uh ken and barbie killers the lost murder tapes apparently it's a very good that's a very good watch i however did not watch it i should have but here we are (laughs) them can you imagine being one of those moms or who a parent around her knowing what she did and she's around your kids 
I would press charges. And you, like, not really anything you can do about it. Except for withdraw my kid from that school oh, and start I would, homeschooling. I would, oh, I would do that. But, I mean, if she has no uh, legal obligations and did her time, like, literally. Nothing you can do. Yeah. Nothing on her end. Mm-mm. Except I might make a shank and then claim I didn't make a shank. Yeah, might might just do that. <laughs> Sometimes you got to. I hate these people. I do too. It always baffles me that people that are sick find another person that's sick in the same vicinity as them, and then they get together, and then they just decide to casually bring up their great ideas. Let's be disgusting together. And then they're like, "Yo, that's a great idea." Mm. I I don't understand, but there's a lot. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Hate them. On that note. Uh, we hope you hate them, too. We hope you hate them, too. But we hope you love this podcast, but hate them. I live off your validation, so please, don't make me cry. <laughs> like and follow us. <laughs> That's our weekly theme, that Casey will cry if you don't i'm very emotional y'all i won't cry but i will disapprove of your actions she'll give you that look mm -hmm. that disapproving look that mothers give people yeah. and it's gonna hurt your feelings you're gonna know i'm not mad i'm just disappointed oh no <laughs> my dad used to say it to me all the time and it's the worst <laughs> anyway we will see you guys next wednesday it's always a Wednesday. It's always a Wednesday. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye.